0: Let me be the first. Well, maybe not the first, but uh, welcome to spring. Uh, I thought I'd celebrate spring. Yes, me too. Except spring forward. Don't like spring forward. But I thought I'd celebrate it with a little lime green and also my Irish heritage. So anyway, if you wouldn't mind standing or remain standing for the reading of God's word, we are in a series of messages through the book of Revelation. This, this, after, this morning we're in uh, chapter 5. And so I read... Again, just by way of introduction, John speaks to us by way of symbol and picture about the enthronement of Jesus Christ in this passage. Beginning in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and elders the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Will you pray with me? Gracious Father in heaven, uh, we come to you thankful for your word. By which we know who you are, by which we know who we are, by which we understand what's wrong with the world and how you've worked in history to make right things in this world, and how we're called to live in relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would feed our faith this morning with a grand vision of who Jesus is. We would find ourselves more confident, more convicted, more convinced of how we should walk in this interesting time in which we find ourselves. Father, guide my thoughts and my words and my lips as I speak forth, um, this passage, and I pray that it would honor you and lift up and exalt your son for the sake of your people and the glory of your name. Amen. Well, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning, Um, not in the sense that I'm not going to give a message, but um, if you remember back, we covered this chapter at Advent season this last, well, three months ago. So I am not going to rehash like four sermons in one sermon, Um, but at the same time, I felt like if we didn't hit this chapter uh, hard in a different way, then when we cross the threshold into chapter 6 where things get dark, then we'll have missed something. So what I want to do is I want to show how this passage, particularly verse 5, is the culmination of a theme that is found at the very beginning of the Bible. That is, it's a little bit like a guitar string. The whole idea of kingship that begins from the beginning and the end, and we are going to just pluck that guitar string um, over and over, and then I'm going to cl- conclude with some, some applications. Um, verse 5, as already was read, it says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Just to lock that in your mind for a second, because that comes out of Genesis. The root of David another reference to the Old Testament. Both of them have to do with the kingship of Jesus. That is, he is the heir to the throne of God. And I want you to see that 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 idea of kingship and kingdom in the Bible begins at the very beginning, the opening pages of Genesis chapter 1. But I think it's good to pause here and just remember how this chapter fits to chapter 4. It's all one vision. Last week, if you were here, we saw the grand vision of Of the glory of God sitting on the throne and there was this variegated array of gem-like light emanating from the throne and and there were the lightning and peals of thunder and rumblings like there's a storm firing and then there's these torches of burning fire around the throne and then there's this sea of glass which we said actually Roman glass is not smooth and so this is idea of a churning ocean so it's a picture of something that's holy indescribable and unapproachable and given that Setting of chapter four of the great one who's on the throne. The question would be, who, who could approach one on a throne like that? Who, who could go into the storm, the lightning and peals of thunder, and cross the churning sea and through the blazing torches to take this scroll, which I believe is a symbol of authority—authority authority over salvation and judgment, authority over history. Who is worthy to take that scroll from the one who sits on the throne? And as we just read, there's only one. In all of heaven, there's only one. And it is the king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. I want to take a right turn here after just setting that up because this is going to feel like a big right turn. Because before I move on to the Old Testament, back to Genesis, we're going to do a big rewind. I just want to connect with our experience a little bit as people and the dilemmas that we face and the temptations we face. And I'm just going to name this one the greener grass dilemma, you know, where we look across the fence and the grass looks greener that is on our side or our side maybe has some patches of brown and maybe an anthill, some stickers. And you look over the fence and it's like really, really green. And you're like, man, I would really like some of that green grass. Now, that, that's a powerful metaphor for us because... We know instinctively that we as beings who have a desire for more oftentimes look over the fence to the greener side of the grass and think, if I could only get there, it would be more satisfying. Now, I can speak from personal experience. Some of you know that I'm somewhat of a four-wheel drive enthusiast. I don't get to do it all the time or as much as I would like, but my family and I like going up into the mountains. And um, what you may not know is that um, for a hot minute, Many moons ago, I I owned a Jeep Wrangler. I know, Ford guy owning a Jeep. Jeep Wrangler. But it wasn't the cool kind with the uh, 4.0 inline-six that everybody likes. No, mine was a four-cylinder Jeep. And for some insane reason, the person who owned it before me put glass packs on the exhaust system so that when I stepped on the gas, it would make this really high-pitched, loud, irritating sound. If you took a, a leaf blower... And it hooked up with a chainsaw and had a baby. (laughs) That's how my Jeep sounded. And some of you will remember, I'd step on the gas and go just like that. That's how it would go. And it was quite frankly embarrassing. I'd be at the stoplight and I'd start, and everybody just stare at me. Here's this Jeep, this man driving it with a four-cylinder with glass packs. I'll tell you, my greener grass, a V8. I know I'm talking engine here. A V8, I just, something low end that rumbles when you step on the, there's something manly about that, that that's not like, "Eh," it's like, That that was my greener grass, right? Eventually, I did get the V8, and it sounded great, still sounds great, but after I got to the greener side of the fence, I had another set of problems, that is, it cost a small fortune at the gas pump. All that to say, that's, that's kind of how life is. Well, that is how life is. We oftentimes think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. It's like maybe it's greener in Utah than California. And I have no, absolutely no judgment whatsoever for people who leave our state. I mean, our country was founded on people who are looking for greener grass. Am I correct? As long as we're following the Lord. And as long as we don't think that we're going to find utopia. Not going to find it. Like, the greener grass might be greener in some senses, but it's going to come with its own set of problems and difficulties. You're going to find on the greener side, maybe there are snakes and big, fat mosquitoes. The fact of the matter is, is that we will never find, we will never achieve utopia here in this world because everyone, everything, and every place is broken. Now, that, that, of course, is the bad news. And yet people still look for the greener grass and they're trying to find utopia, wherever it is and with whoever it is with. um, The bad news is, of course, that we we can't ever find it, Um, nor can we achieve it. But, and here's the story of the gospel, of course, is that God has, by an act of sheer grace, offered it to us in the person work of his king. The person work of his king is the only thing that offers us something that truly satisfies in every way. The king. And I want to tell you, this is my thesis, everything hangs on the king. Everything. You could possibly ever want or experience every joy, every sense of peace that you would want, the human heart wants is found in the king. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. This is a culminating passage in Revelation 5, and I want you to see just how amazing he is, but I want to go back to the beginning to show you that the Bible actually speaks of one single story. Earth's first king, and these are very popular verses. Most of us know them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, except to say that I want you to understand there's dominion here, and so our earth's first queen, king and queen were Adam and Eve. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion. That's rule, exercise of authority, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the, air, of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So Adam was given dominion over the entire earth and everything in it. And then God gives him a mandate that carries this idea of dominion in it. And verse 28 says, And God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and so forth. That is, the first king had a mission. The, the mission, which began in Eden, was to multiply and then fill the earth with God-like people, a magnificent, marvelous civilization of people who radiated the glory of God, the character of God. That was his mission. And as a community of God-like people to exercise loving, careful, benevolent rule over the earth so that the earth would flourish. That was his job. And it started in the, in the garden. You needed to, we need to understand he had work to do. Like he had to fill the earth. He had to expand that garden to cover the globe. That was his mandate. Cover the globe with a godlike people who glorify him and exercise dominion. That's, that's kingship. It begins right here in Genesis chapter 1. It's how he designed things to be. Now, of course, (laughs) the greenest grass you'll ever find, minus the end of the Bible, was in Genesis 1 and 2. You don't get greener than that. I mean, Adam and Eve had absolutely everything. The first king and queen had, had a luxurious place to live with want of nothing. Each other, perfect community and perfect direct access to God. They were, in in effect, priests because they had direct access to God in the garden. So it's, it's like the perfect place. It was the first outpost of the kingdom of God, and they were supposed to expand it. And yet, we know the story. All it took was somebody to whisper in the ear of the queen and king, in a manner of speaking, there's green grass you haven't tasted yet. Just across the fence, that one thing, one single thing of the thousands of things that God has blessed you with, that one thing will make your life better. Of course, we know the story. They listened to the lie, the king was played. And on the other side of the fence, what do they find? Thorns and thistles, guilt and death. The big lie that there's a greener grass on the other side of God's command. Well, as, as I just said, the kingdom fell. The kingdom of God was lost. The king was dethroned. But again, God is gracious. And so God came along in Genesis chapter 17. It also is implied in chapter 12. A promise is made. A promise is made of kingship to Abraham. And let me pause and say, the entire Old Testament, largely taken up with following the lineage of Adam all the way to the king. Following this lineage of the king. So to Abraham, he says, I will make, and this is a very general promise, but he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. That was found in Genesis chapter 1-2. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. But God's saying the king's going to come back in a very general way. When you get to the end of Genesis, the fourth generation from Adam, this, these words are said to Judah, a name that's found in Revelation 5. It's like, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. Judah, lion. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter that is an implement of authority, of royal imperial authority, shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, to one. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is a much more specified From the line of Judah will come the one who will have the scepter, and all the peoples will obey him. This is Genesis 49. Then to David, also from the line of Judah, this promise is made, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now he's saying that this is not just a throne that will exist for 100 years or 10,000 years, but it will be eternal. Isaiah makes it even more explicit when he declares to us, or should I say God through the prophet Isaiah, declares to us that this king would be both fully human and fully divine when we read famous Christmas passage, to us a, a child is born, born, child, that is a human. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, that is a way of saying he will, he will wield all authority, and his name shall be called, amongst other things, Mighty God. So you have this this climaxing sense of this coming king. And the prophet Daniel, this is the last text will be in the Old Testament. You could go to a lot of them, but you'll notice as I read this that a lot of this language is in Revelation 5 because John draws from the prophet Daniel, in particular, this chapter 7, which is an enthronement passage, like the coronation. Verse 9, as I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair and hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, his wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. We heard that language already read this morning. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. There's a Genesis one word. And glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages, we also read that in Revelation, should serve him. His dominion will be an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Unlike every other empire in human history, this one will last forever. So uh, there's all this language that is used in revelation chapter 5 of thrones and fire and thousands of thousands serving him and and then someone approaches in this grand s- scene i mean this is revelation 4 and 5 approaches and to this one a son of man is given authority over all all peoples for all time it's universal and it's eternal you see genesis 1 is being reclaimed God's original plan and design is being reclaimed by God himself. So you can imagine with this like growing momentum all centered on the king that there would be like 4th of July fireworks going off when Jesus came to say it's here. These are the first words that Jesus actually says, red print depending on what your Bible is, The time is fulfilled. This is the gospel of Mark. And the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. Repent and believe in the gospel. The long-awaited promise to Abraham and Judah and Isaiah and Daniel. It's here. Imagine how disappointing it would have been to realize that the one, the king, was a blue-collar carpenter. Like with with no PhDs after his name, no expensive Ivy League college diplomas, just a carpenter, a man acquainted with sorrows and grief. It would have been a massive anticlimactic experience. And yet we know that if he had come in the way that Revelation 5 envisions him, There would be no kingdom. There would just be an obliteration of all human life. That first the king must come and pay the curse of Adam, the first king's sin, and all of ours as well, and would bear that guilt to the cross. It's the only way to establish a kingdom for people to be rescued, redeemed, reclaimed, reformed, restored, and glorified. And then there's this ironic statement that Jesus makes on the day of his crucifixion hours before he's going to die where he where he's about to be condemned and everybody thinks he's just a, a charlatan he says this and this seals his fate he says from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven that's daniel chapter 7 verse 13 One coming on the clouds you're going to see that after my death, you're going to see that I get it all. It's all going to be mine for all eternity. I am the king. Of course, he dies for us, the great king, rises, and after a brief stay with his disciples, he ascends. We don't pay a lot of attention to his ascension, but we should. Because Acts chapter 1, verse 9 tells us he ascends to heaven on what? A cloud. A reference to Daniel chapter 7 and the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days to receive a kingdom. I believe that Revelation 5 is is what you would call the enthronement passage. Where you actually get to see in a heavenly vision the transfer of kingship and authority... From the throne of Yahweh to his king, the Messianic king, Jesus. It's like a great coronation. The response of heaven to the transaction of the scroll from the throne of chapter 4 to the Lamb of chapter 5 causes everyone in heaven to respond. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the, the living creatures and the elders and the voices of angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. This is a, like an, an inauguration. And they're all blessing with power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature in heaven, on the earth and under the earth and in the sea all says to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might. You see? I mean, really the best we can think of in America's presidential inauguration, right? They're pretty cool, regardless of who the president is. It's, it's pretty awesome to watch. Everybody gathered out, well, maybe not during COVID, but everybody gathered out in front of the place where the inauguration happens, and then there's the music, and there's the military bands, and they're playing all of our favorite uh, patriotic songs, and then there's prayers, and then the dignitaries start coming in to music and announcers, and there are, there are, there are presidents, former presidents, and congressmen and women and they're coming in and taking their seats and it's quite moving and of course then there's this oath and and there's prayers and it's it's a pretty moving sight to see the commencement of an administration of a new president's authority but it's kind of a horrible analogy because president only serves at best eight years maybe four and then it starts all over again I think it might be better to think of witnessing the coronation of a British monarch. Um, The queen was enthroned of England long before I was born. I think my mom was 17. I never got to see it. But I'm, I'm hoping before I die, I get to see Prince William crowned. That'd be pretty cool. I'd say Prince Charles, but he's not my favorite guy. Probably not most people's favorite either. But how cool would that be? To see the crowning of a monarch according to traditions that go back a thousand years in Westminster Abbey, where you have the the Archbishop of Canterbury there and no anointing, the future king, asking him to make oaths and promises, before all of these people and royalty and dignitaries from all over the world are gathered. And that moment when he is heralded as king. That would be pretty awesome. I'd like to see that. I hope I do get to see it. Because that's not one one-hundredth of the scene that we have here in Revelation chapter 5. All of the angelic dignitaries, so to speak, and all of their rankings gathered around. And at the transfer of power, they all worship. They all fall. They all praise and honor the new king. This is an event, church, that has has already happened. Christ has ascended. It's called the enthronement of Jesus on the cloud to the Father to receive a kingdom. It's also called by old old theologians the session of Christ, which means he's seated at the right hand. This is a a powerful picture of, of our king, who is right now ruling and reigning on high. All things have already been put under his feet, which means under his authority. And now he's working out the final plan of salvation and judgment until it comes to conclusion. Now, why is this important to understand this? We're done with the kind of biblical theology of of the king. It's important for a couple reasons. One is we're about to cross over the threshold into chapter 6 of Revelation. And let me just tell you, from chapter 6 on, it's going to get dark. There's going to be chaos, and there's going to be pain, and there's going to be death. There's going to be persecution, and there's going to be judgment. The critical part that this chapter plays is to remind all of God's people that, guess what? Our king is on the throne, and these are all things underneath his command. As he's working out judgment in the world, and as he's working out salvation in the world. This is the cornerstone for Christians So that no matter what we face, we recognize he has already been enthroned. Our king has the crown. He's already been anointed. The other thing, the reason why it's important, is just to recognize that God didn't change plans. What he started in the garden with the first Adam. He has succeeded and completed in the last Adam, the true king. Same plan, the same mandate of Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 29, is accomplished by Christ. And he is going to fill the earth with God like people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, who will, according to Revelation 5, and they will reign on the earth. Mission accomplished. You see? Mission accomplished by Christ. Now, how does this apply? Let me offer three briefly. They should be obvious, but it's good to revisit the obvious, isn't it? Because <laughs> we forget the obvious too much. One, it means trust the king, whatever may come. Whatever may come, we're people who, by nature, are are fixers and controllers of our environment. When there's a problem, we want to fix it, and there's nothing wrong with trying to fix things within our power. But we all know there's limitations to that. I, I I'll tell you, I have trust issues. My wife will tell you I have a hard time driving in a car and sleeping while somebody else drives. No matter how good of a driver you are, it's so hard for me to fall asleep. Why? Because I have trust issues. And if I do man- manage to like doze off for like two minutes, and I hear the tires going over some of those reflectors, or the little divots on the side of the highway, and it's like... Brruh, brruh, I... I straighten up like a jack-in-the-box. I'm like, everything okay? Right? Trust issues. Trust issues. It's hard to trust somebody else to oversee your life, to oversee our future, to oversee what's happening. I'd venture to say, you know, there are, there are those here. I know people are going through difficult times. And, and it's times like this we have to remember, listen, i got to trust the crown, the crown of Christ. i got to trust him i got to relinquish control, and instead of becoming a doubter or a cynic or a fanatic, I have to relinquish control and trust him with this. As hard as it is, that's the call of revelation. Trust him. Whatever comes, no matter how dark it gets, how bad it gets, no matter what you lose or what you gain, you have to trust him no matter what comes. Because Revelation is going to say a lot of difficult things are going to come. And they have come through, throughout the church history. Two, remain loyal to the king at all cost. Remain loyal to the king at all costs. Christians are, have and will and are facing pressure against their faith. This book gives us a picture of a battle that's raging against God's people. And there are points in this book where we are told that the, the war that's raging takes Christian life. And there is deception, there's pressure in this battle that we're all in, and we must remain loyal to Christ in our in faith, to him, to his word. Because there, there are very very smart powerful principalities at work trying to undo us there are places in our own state where if people found out if your employer found out that you had conservative christian views about life about christ and morality then it's possible that you might be either passed over for promotion promotion or or terminated. It's one thing to say, hey, I'm going to stand in that day when it comes with a kind of Spartan bravado, I could do this. But when your finances are on the line, it's a lot more difficult. I know that there are pockets within the educational system where if you do not write your paper according to the party line, then you may suffer academically. That's true. It happens. All of us in this room at some point are going to face a crossroads where you're going to be tempted, where you're going to feel pressure to violate your loyalty to the crown. Thankfully, the Lord is gracious and merciful and forgiving, but this book calls us to loyalty. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. They continue to be, remain loyal to the crown, to the crown of Christ. So each of us has to have and be resolved in our own mind, everyone, including myself, at those crossroads, where's your loyalty? Where's the loyalty of your faith? And third, the book ends with glory through all of the dark chapters it ends in glory. Set your hope in the king to lead you to the new creation. We're not there yet. We're, we're, we're on in journey, <laughs> journey mode. Like we have the benefits of, 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 of forgiveness, of knowing God loves us, of knowing right now we have eternal life. Even if we die, we still live. That we have peace with God, peace with Christ. So all of that is present blessing that we have. But we're not there yet, and you know that. There's only one place where the grass will satisfy. And that is when Jesus, our king, leads us onto the shores of a brand new creation. Where there are no thorns or thistles, no more guilt, and no more death. And I finish with this, just part of a final uh, vision of of Revelation. Just think about green grass. and they will see his face. Church, that is that is the green grass that we seek. Where we are in the presence of God, minus the curse, minus sin, minus thorns and thistles in the presence of God. Let us live for that and hope for that. Trust him. Be loyal to him. And hope in him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I ask um, in these days of difficulty and at the same time opportunity you've given us opportunity to shine like lights in a darkening world and we pray that we would do that and not lose hope or become people who are cynical about the world but rather change agents people who believe in the power of the gospel to go forward and change people's lives from darkness to light to turn a sinner into a saint and that ongoing work of creating a people from every tribe tongue and nation that has not been completed yet i pray did you grant us faithfulness to that end, that mission that you gave Adam in the beginning and Christ gave us in Matthew 28? Pray this in Christ's name.